0: What up crew? It's good to see you guys. Uh, Welcome to the salt company. Come on. If you voted for the salt shake, you won. All right. That was supposed to be good. You guys were supposed to like, oh wow, like I voted for that. Yeah. um, Got a tattoo, which was great. Uh, Which by the way, if you're new here, uh, I just want to say I'm like really sorry. (laughs) I like had this realization mid tattoo, not the time to have any type of realization. And I was like, wow, like this is like super culty. Like, actually, I'm getting a salt shaker for the salt company, and I work for Salt City Church. I was like, this is, this is too much. So we're not that weird. Um, I had that realization. Immediate regret flowed through my veins, but it's on me forever. So love it. Uh, but uh, thankful to be here. If I haven't met you guys yet, my name is Tony. Um, I would love to get to know you. In fact, all of our staff would. And so if you're new here or you haven't met any of our staff yet, please come up to us after the service. We'd love to get to know your name and get to know who you are. So, speaking of painful things, uh, I may have fractured my foot last Saturday, which is really, really funny for a lot of different reasons, but um, kind of unfortunate for fall retreat, because I like, really wanted to like, do the sports and stuff, but it like, hurts to walk, which is cool, um, and it happened in the aftermath of running 20 miles, okay? Now, if you're hearing like, wow, like, 20 miles is like, a significant distance to drive, yes, you're absolutely right. Like, I was doing it, and I was like, wow, I've been here... Doing the same thing for so long drives you a little bit nuts um I, I don't like running i'm actually not a runner uh but let me be real it was really really painful like super painful which some people are like it gets easier it really doesn't it just hurts just as bad every single time so really really painful but here's like the most surprising part of that 20 mile run okay is that like i kind of started to enjoy it okay i know sounds crazy it absolutely sounds crazy, but here's why I could enjoy something so painful is because I had perspective. So here's what I want us to get tonight: that perspective is found at the intersection of knowing where and why, and where you're going, and why, why where you're going, and why you're doing what you're doing. And for me, my run, my destination, my where was Los Angeles, California, November 7th. I'll be running the LA Marathon. If this heals, uh, with 27,000 people going through downtown LA, that was my where. And my why was I wanted to challenge myself and do something I never thought I could do with my flat feet and short legs, okay? So I was really excited. I really want to do it. But I knew my where and my why, so I had perspective. And guys, listen, I, I, I say that story because um, I think life most of the time feels more like a 20-mile run than it does like anything else. And the reality is uh, this is a room big enough where I know that every single person in this room has walked in here with some type of pain. And actually, for most of us, we've probably walked in here feeling a little bit fractured. I, I say this often to myself, but this is one of the things I look forward to most in heaven, is meeting someone who's not fractured, meeting someone who's actually whole. And the reality is, I know that regardless of your present circumstances, you've come in here bearing some, some things from your past, that the past hasn't just like left It hasn't just stayed in the past, but it's actually kind of permeated your present, and you're walking in here with a thought or a moment or a painful reality in your soul that just makes you feel broken and alone. Guys, I I just want to begin this message as we kind of talk about eternal perspective by saying that's actually like something I've been wrestling a lot with this week, is that um, I feel like I should be better by now. It's something I feel pretty consistently in my life. And primarily around the idea of trauma in my childhood, but maybe you're here and you're kind of like, okay, I, I've like known Jesus for a little bit, or I'm, like, I'm in good community, or I'm, like, I'm finally hitting my stride as a human being, but you feel like you should be better by now, that there's actually things in your soul that have been unturned, that there's actually things in your soul that have been unhealed, and this is the message for you. Because I think for us, we live in a broken world, and that means that pain is the banner of the human condition, where it actually where it actually shadows over us in the mundane moments of life and buries us in the valley. But here's the good news that Christianity offers, that no other worldview, religion, therapy, self-help, or ideology can offer, and it can offer you eternal perspective, a perspective that shows you that you are headed somewhere and your life is incredibly meaningful. And I think for a lot of us here tonight, that's what we need to leave the room knowing, is that eternal perspective is found at the intersection of knowing where you're going and why you're here. So as we continue in, guys, here's a kind of question, the operating question I want you to be thinking of as we kind of work through this text is what would actually change in your life and the way that you think and the way that you live if you had true eternal perspective? How would eternal perspective change your life? That's the question for us today as we transition into Acts chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible with you, I'd love if you take it out. It's really, really helpful when you actually leaf through it with me. I know that we have it on the screens, and I say that every single time I teach, but I would love if you'd open up your Bible because we actually believe that the Word of God has something to say about your life. And so if you want to take out your Bible with you, we're going to be turning to Acts chapter 4, where we see a man named Peter who was transformed by eternal perspective, who understood where he was going and why he was living. So turn with me to Acts chapter 4 as we continue our series called The Power of of God. So before we hop into verse one, here's some context, okay? Uh, Peter had just finished up in Acts chapter three, healing the lame beggar, that's what we talked about last week, by the power of God and preached to the crowd that they had killed the author of life whose name is Jesus. And then we start in chapter four with with the barging in of the people in positions of power. So look with me to verses one to two. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Okay, so here are a couple characters that we have in our story. I'm just going to kind of set it out for us. Okay, we've got the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. Okay, these were the upper echelon of Jerusalem in the first century. The priests were considered the religious practitioner who kind of carried out the sacrificial law. The captain of the temple kind of operated as like a sheriff or the head of the police force. And the Sadducees were the cultural elite of that day. And they were really, really mad at Peter and John, two disciples and apostles of Jesus. Not just because they had healed a man, but primarily because they were teaching and proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. And they were greatly annoyed and disturbed for two reasons. And the first is that they expected the movement to die. But their expectations didn't meet the reality, and it made them pissed. Okay, so I've got this pinched nerve in my rear delt on my left side, which is, like, super annoying. Sometimes I tweak it and, like, spasms my neck, okay? So it is literally the worst. But I got a pinched nerve, like, way back when. And here's how I, like, decided to treat it, okay? I was like, if I just don't think about it or do anything about it, it'll get better. Like, that was, like, like a legit logic. I was like, it'll just go away, right? But it didn't. That's a bummer. Here's the reality. In this moment, Christianity and the Jesus movement to these religious people were like my pinch nerve. They were just hoping that if they just wouldn't look at it too much, they wouldn't address it too much, that eventually the movement of Jesus would go away. But instead, they were greatly annoyed because not only did it not die, they began to thrive. And here was the cultural and religious elite's expectations of that day, that the Jesus movement would be squashed like every other minor Jewish messianic uprising. But in fact, it didn't. And they came to this conclusion that if Christianity was of God, it would live, but if it wasn't, it would die. So in Acts chapter 5, you don't have to turn there with me, they talked about two different people, Thaddeus and Judas the Galilean. I know this is some history, but just bear with me. It'll make sense. These were two Jewish messianic leaders that claimed that they were saviors, but after they died, the movement died. But unlike those people, Jesus died and the movement began. And here's the reality about the church, that Christianity didn't just die with Jesus. It actually exploded after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And unlike those movements, this movement was of God, and the power of God began to fill His people. And t- for two thousand years later, we're still worshiping the same Jesus. And Christianity began to span over seven different continents and birth the orphanages, the universities, and the hospitals of our day. This is what the Christian movement did. And Saul Company, the most important thing that it birthed was the church. And what happened was the gates of hell did not prevail against the ongoing movement of God. And the church is alive because although Jesus died for a moment, he became alive forever in heaven. And because he is alive, the church is alive. So unlike any other Jewish sect of that time, the movement of God began to flourish. And the second reason why the religious and the cultural elites of that day were bothered was because instead of hiding and running, Peter, having eternal perspective, was teaching and proclaiming the resurrection of the dead in Jesus Now, here's why that was like a non-starter for these religious leaders. uh, It's because the Sadducees had all the political power in Jerusalem, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. Now, I need you guys to understand this. I know we're kind of getting into some of the the nitty-gritty here, but to understand the stakes of this moment, you have to know that the Sadducees were liberal in theology. They considered themselves woke and kind of the advanced thinkers of their society, and they believed that the resurrection from the dead was foolish and illogical. They are religious Entitled, but practically secular in every other way, and they had more more of a priority on political power than piety, which is holiness, as they presided over the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. I want you guys to think of the Sadducees of their day like modern day politicians who have kind of gained their power through wealth and lineage, who were anti supernaturalists and therefore rejected any notion of heaven, hell, angels, or spirits, and had a deep disdain for any type of messianic or savior prophecy because they believed that man was the master of his own identity, not God. So because they didn't believe in the resurrection, they hated Peter and the message of Jesus. Because if the resurrection happened, then their entire basis of power and worldview would crumble. And they would be removed from the seats of power in Jerusalem. So I want you to see this, that these Sadducees, these religious leaders, hated the resurrection of Jesus because it gave people eternal perspective. And you can't control people with religion who have eternal perspective. And here's what they knew of that time, is that if the news got out of the Jesus resurrection movement, it would completely undermine their ability to control the people. Because if life after death exists and Jesus rules that life, then the people under the political rule of the Sadducees would, like Peter, begin to have eternal perspective. And when you have eternal perspective, this matters for you right now, when you have eternal perspective, you care less about the words of man and more about the words of God. And it begins to transform the way that you live and the ways that you think. You're less concerned and therefore less pliable to the powers of the day or less manageable by the cultural leaders of the time. And guys, listen, the reason why I kind of break all this down about the Sadducees is because they're not unlike a lot of the thought leaders of our day. Individuals who claim to have higher thinking, who claim to be woke, who claim to have kind of thought through things in a different way. See, the culture of elites of our day do not wear togas, but they wear this thing called ideology, This idea that they could kind of form your mind around a couple key ideas, one of them being that truth does not exist and that they could actually lead you and form you. And these voices of pluralistic truth, primarily atheists and agnostics, want to convince you to follow their movement, a different messianic movement that promises that if you follow that individual ideology that you too will be saved. But the reality is every ruler has failed. No king, no Sanhedrin, no president, no social media influencer, no woke media outlet has ever been able to save the world. And every kingdom has crumbled over time, yet not the kingdom of Jesus. Because the kingdom of Jesus did not stand on the voices of man, but on the word of God. And because Peter had eternal perspective, he knew that truth was only found in Jesus. So he began to teach and proclaim what he knew to be true, that the resurrection did happen. That life is not found in political power and rule like the Sadducees, but in the power of heaven. And this enraged the people of power to that day to the point that they arrested them. Look with me to verse 3 to 4 as we continue the story. And they arrested them and put them into custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number came to about 5,000. Ooh, Okay. So here's what happened, okay, is the captain, kind of like the sheriff, the head of the police force, arrested them and put them in jail illegally by force. But I love what happens here is that even though Peter and John are in jail, the word was spoken and that word did not come back void. In fact, in that moment after the second sermon of Peter, first on Pentecost, we kind of hit that a couple weeks ago. Now in the temple, there gained 2,000 more men who had followed Jesus. Now I want you guys to see the impact of the kingdom of God in the city of Jerusalem at that time and why Jordan kind of quoted that quote at the end of his sermon last week. It was so good that the power that happened in Jerusalem could not be described by anything else other than the resurrection of Jesus. Here's what happened is a few weeks from the ascension of Jesus, 5,000 5, total men had put their faith in Christ. Now this is like a first century document, right? So they counted men, but if you count children and women, that was about 20,000 people that had put their belief in Jesus and their lives were transformed just in Jerusalem. Now, estimates of the time think that Jerusalem had around 25,000 to 85,000 people total. So let me just put that into perspective. On the very high end, within a couple weeks after the ascension of Jesus, one in every four people came to believe in Christ. Revival had begun. And even as the apostles were in jail, the church was growing. And here's why that's so important for you to know is that the kingdom of God is unlike any other kingdom. That this kingdom did not use swords and shields to promote their message, but they used the word of God and taught it and proclaimed it, and people began to be healed and began to move and move in mission. And here's what Peter had. He knew that with this eternal perspective, this idea that knowing where you're going and why you were living had so deeply impacted him that he understood that his why, his purpose on earth was not to take up a sword and shield for Jesus, but was to proclaim the gospel through word and character. That was his why, his reason for living, because he knew that the word of God could save and transform the world. But he also knew something else, that his job was proclamation and God's job was salvation, that the power wasn't in the presentation, but the power was in the subject matter. Okay, so I love uh, old dead guys. I really, really do. I really love them. Uh, They're great. Did you know you can read books from people like hundreds of years ago, and they'll like tell you stories about their life. Like, you can actually do that. You can still go buy books. That's a thing. You can also listen to um, audiobooks, whatever. It's nuts. Reading is nuts. That's a crazy concept. Okay, none of you guys think that. You should think that. That's, like, awesome. Um, But listen, one of my favorite old dead guys is Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Mr. Spurgeon is kind of like the uh, gold standard if you're looking into, like, guys who really followed Jesus a couple hundred years ago. So he's incredible. Um, He had, at one point, more influence in England than the King of England. Preached to over a million people live, which is pretty cool. So you should read his stuff. Anyways, he tells a story where uh, he does like a mic check, okay? So keep in mind, he like pastored in like the late 1800s, so obviously they didn't have mics. But he would go into these like massive churches, like seating 10,000 people crazy, like kind of like the Basilica looking stuff in England, right? Uh, He would go to these churches the night before he preached. And the way that he would mic check is he would kind of expound his voice and check the acoustics of the room. And the way that he would do that in particular was that when the church was empty, he would go, and he would just recite a Bible verse over and over and over again. And here's the one that he chose for that particular Saturday evening. Behold, the Lamb, of the, Lord, of, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he just repeated, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they just go super loud, so I'm going to try it. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he would just repeat that for like an hour. It was crazy, but he could t- test the acoustics of the room. And here's listen, guys, he thought the church was empty, but it actually wasn't because there was one man fixing the rafters of that church. And for the first time in that man's life, he heard the wa- word of God spoken over him and came to behold the Lamb of God that took away the sins of his life. And he began to follow Jesus. And here's what happened is that the word of God transformed his life, even though Spurgeon was just trying to like mic-check the room, that God would use the word itself, not necessarily the presentation or who's doing it to actually radically transform this man's life. And so, we need to know what Peter did, that God's job is salvation and our job is proclamation, which means here's what's true about your life, is you cannot save people. Mm -hmm. That the people in your life that you desperately want to know, Jesus, your parents, your friends, your roommates, your coworkers, Your job is to proclaim the good news of Jesus to them. It's God's job to save them. And we can trust that with eternal perspective. Every single time you get to share the gospel really matters. And I'll think of it like this in college. I used to text a ton of guys, invite them to Salt company and most of the time they'd leave me unread, which was fine, because in my mind I was like, listen, a hundred times they might say no. A hundred and first time they might behold the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. So I'm just going to keep showing up and keep being faithful and keep shooting them texts because even those many witnesses opportunities mattered, because with eternal perspective, we can understand, like Peter, that our job is to proclaim the gospel. And when the gospel is proclaimed, lives get changed. But he, Peter knew uh, where he was going, um, Sorry, he knew why he was living, but he also knew where he was going. So look with me to verses 5 through 12. I'm going to read this whole section out. It's going to take a hot minute. Just stick with me. That's why you should have your Bible. It makes it easier for you to follow along. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were in the high priestly family. And when they set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Ruler of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man must be healed, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel by the name, it was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Okay. So verses 5 to 6 describe those who made up the Sanhedrin, kind of the Jewish Supreme Court. And they were the people of power in the city. And last week, Jordan kind of taught on how we killed the author of life. That each one of us and all of our sins nailed the nails to Jesus' hands, even though we weren't physically there. Right. This week... These people were physically there. These were the exact people, the exact same religious rulers who had captured, tortured, and condemned Jesus to death. And now they've captured and arrested Peter and John in the same unjust fashion as they did with Jesus. Verse 7 says, set them in their midst. But the Greek actually means to throw down. They treated them brutally as they treated Jesus, so I want you to imagine with me what Peter and John have gone through. At this point, they had spent a night in a freezing, disgusting prison, roughed up by guards, and thrown in the midst of, which means center. Now, here's some imagery for you: uh, the center describes a circle, where it was in front of a semicircle of 71 elevated chairs in theater fashion. So, thrown down in the middle, and they're about to be persecuted. Now, imagine you're Peter, right? You've seen these events before. Arrested unjustly for preaching truth thrown in jail by the temple guard and made to testify in front of people of power. This is a parallel to Jesus, but this time you're not God, you're Peter. And this is the same Peter who eight weeks ago denied Jesus in front of a slave girl who was the lowest member of society in power and position. And yet, as he's thrown down in front of 71 of the most powerful men in Jerusalem, the same men who used their power to whip kill and torture and kill the author of life, the denier became the proclaimer. And fear was replaced by faith. And Peter's perspective changed because before Jesus, he had no idea where he was going. His destination was unclear. He was afraid of death, for at death he would have to face the unknown. But after Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended, Peter knew that life existed after death. He gained eternal perspective where his life on earth was temporal, but his life with Jesus was forever. So instead of denying Jesus on trial, he proclaimed the truth. Verse 8 says he was filled by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Spirit of God, and he began to preach. And in verses 9 through 10, he preaches that if the accusation is how this man was healed, then he was healed only by the name of Jesus, not by Peter's hands, but only the name that is Jesus. See, the trial began with an accusation against him, and then he turns the trial and accuses them that this name of power of healing is the same name in whom they crucified and whom God raised from the dead, that Jesus was the cornerstone, rejected by them, but resurrected by God and exalted to the highest point of valuable stone in the kingdom of God. Look with me to verse 12 as we look at the pinnacle of Peter's proclamation. And there is salvation in no one else, For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So I'll come in Here's what Peter would want to tell you tonight. That there is salvation and healing in no one else. No other religion, no other ideology, no other worldview, no other drug, no other addiction, no other type of medication or accomplishment or person can save you. There is salvation in no one else. But we must be saved. And here's the thing. Let me just be real with you guys. Everyone knows we must be saved. Every human being knows that their life isn't what they wanted it to be, that the condition of their soul isn't what they wanted it to be. They know that explications never line up with reality and that they were made for a different and better life. Every human being knows that they must be saved, but the cost is the pride to realize that you cannot save yourself. The, the idea that no other name can heal you will be the most important idea if you're a Christian for the rest of your life. Because you will be tempted time and time again to go medicate your pain in other ways. To go medicate your pain through accomplishments or achievements or the girl, whatever you do, you will try to medicate your pain with the job that you get or the accomplishments that you have or the feel-good moments that you have or you'll medicate your pain by going on the best vacation you've ever wanted or you'll medicate the pain by posting another picture on Instagram to get the likes that you need to have the dopamine hit to feel whole. But the reality is that no other name can heal you. You have to run to the king. company, Peter knew his where and his why, and he had eternal perspective. And I believe that if we became a people marked by eternal perspective and fueled by the power of God and our spirit, our lives would look radically different. I wanna go back to the question I started with tonight. How differently would you think and how differently would you live if you knew where you were going and why you were living? I think God would be gonna show you purpose in your pain, that God isn't finished with you yet and nothing is wasted, that your past, your pain, your brokenness is all to glorify God in dependence on him and to proclaim the gospel. You guys were here last week, Rachel said that, right? It is undeniable that Rachel's back injury was allowed Allow, has allowed the gospel to move deeply in her in both character and word. That through her back injury, she has grown in dependence to Christ and many people around her have felt the impacts of that glory. And here's what I want you to see, that your, perp, your pain has absolute purpose if you have eternal perspective, that God is preparing you for a day and one day you will be completely whole, but in this day, even your fractured self can give dependent to give glory to him by be, being dependent on him. I think we would all live lives of joy in the midst of mundane moments of life because we would realize that going to class is not ultimately for our education, but going to class is ultimately for the eternal purposes of God, to proclaim and teach the gospel to your classmates. I think we would be less stressed about performing for others because, like Peter, we'd be less concerned about the words of man and more concerned about the words of God. I think you wouldn't skip out on Connection Group because of murals or homework or tests. But you would commit to community because you know that God is preparing you as a saint to be someone who exemplifies him in your character and your words. And so I I think revival would reign in this place. That if we had eternal perspective, we would go where people wouldn't go, like overseas. That we would love like no one else can love and we would serve the least of these. And we would see the spirit rain down in this place. That we would see revival happen in our midst. And I think people would look at Saul St. Paul and say, man, what an unimpressive people, but what an unbelievable God. I think they would say about us what they said about Peter and John in verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Yes, so I want you to see that when you have been with Jesus, your perspective changes forever. That as eternity crashes into your world, you begin to live differently. See, eternal perspective comes with being with Jesus, deeply shaped and changed by your Savior. Because I think, honestly, when I, have, when I see life through eternal perspective, found in being with Jesus, I, I actually begin to rejoice at the hardships of my childhood. The stuff that plagues me on a daily basis the stuff that makes me feel most fractured and most broken when i have eternal perspective i can begin to rejoice because it's in that brokenness that i've learned dependence on christ and as i've depended on christ he has been glorified and he has used that dependence to bring the gospel to places that i could never go before and here's what's true is that suffering has made me into a man who knows that he has broken legs and a fractured feet and is in desperate need of jesus and the type of man the type of man that, loves to, that God loves to use to carry the good news of a suffering savior to a suffering people. And maybe that's what God wants to do in you. And maybe you've showed up tonight and you've been going through some stuff. And maybe people here in this room don't even know about it actually. That a lot of your life has been processing whether or not you can actually feel whole again after that person cheated on you. Or you're here and your father left you at a young age and you've never actually been able to know why. And you've you've asked yourself the question, is it because I'm not lovable enough? Is it because I messed up and you've never had answers to your questions? Or you've seen people in your life struggle. You've seen yourself struggle with depression and you're asking yourself, is there anything else? Is there purpose in this pain? Your pain has prepared you for sanctification and dependence on Jesus in ways that you could have never imagined. And God will use that character to give you more fruitful ministry than you could have ever hoped for. And the reality is, we that carry the good news of a suffering savior to suffering people have had to suffer ourselves. And as I invite Kurt and Jonathan back onto the stage, I want you to see that Peter wasn't the first one to have eternal perspective, that Jesus was. Instead of facing the Sanhedrin in court, Jesus faced death on a cross And as he took his last breath, he was able to see suffering with eternal perspective. And he yelled out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So as his life was being taken, he was being overtaken by concern for the sinners who were nailing nails in his hands. That he had eternal perspective and he knew where he was going and why he came to earth and was to save the exact sinners that killed the author of life. But not only did he know where he was going and why he came, he also knew who he was. He was the name above every name, the Son of God, the beloved, and the highly delighted. He knew who he was, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so Company, come I want you to see that he knew his name. And if you are in Christ, you have a new name. That the old name that you walked in here with is washed away by the blood of Jesus, and you have a new name. I want you to see that this is the radical exchange called the cross. That Jesus would take the fractured names that you walked in here with, whatever you've been through, you've been through something that has left you feeling fractured and you've made that your identity. Jesus can take those fractured names onto himself in the form of nails, splinters, and whippings, so he could give you a new name called the child of God. And more love than you could ever imagine, more glorious than you could ever hope for, Jesus gives you a new name. And if you're here and you're fractured and in need of eternal perspective to know where you're going, why you're living, and who you are, Jesus is the great physician, and he wants to invite you into a new life. Not a life of feeling fractured and broken and alone for the rest of your life, but to be in deep communion with your great physician. The offer for us all tonight is that he can give you a new name, a new hope, a new home, and a new purpose for your life. And there's salvation in no one else and in no other name. Let's run to Jesus tonight. Let's pray. Yeah, Father, I I just ask that we would all run to the one that can save, that there's no other name given under heaven that can give us hope and healing the way that you can, that we've all walked in here fractured and broken, tired and alone. But Jesus, you are the great, Physician who meets us in our brokenness and provides us a way into freedom. So, Jesus, would you do it again, what you've done for the last 2,000 years, what you did in Jerusalem, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, to St. Paul? Father, I pray that you would do it again, that the gospel would be enough, and we would run to you, Lord.